e-longevity, bringing space, crypto, and longevity science discussion to the masses. Welcome. We're happy that you're here. Welcome to e-longevity podcast, everyone. As you know, this is our flagship effort to bring e-longevity to the masses. I'm codenamed Lou, one of the early Discord admins and Dojalon lover. Um, and we really appreciate Methuselah for hosting this podcast. This is episode 11, and we always like to introduce our, our guest host, Britannia. Hello, Britannia, zero, zero. Um, I've been a Dogalon holder um, since May of 2021. Uh, bring with me 17 years of healthcare consulting experience in the neuroscience space. And I'm super, super, super excited about our guest today. As am I, episode 11. So we're deep into this podcast effort and we really appreciate all the support. And today we have a very special guest, the Chief Science Officer at Optispan, Professor of Lab and Medicine Pathology at the um, University of Washington and co-director of the Dog Aging Project, which we're going to take a deep dive in today. We have Matt Caberline. Welcome to the show. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really excited to uh, to have the conversation. As are we. Caberline, correct? You got it. Okay. So where does it come from? Where do you come from? Before I get into all those deep, etherical questions like, you know, what is your definition of aging? You know, who is Matt Caberline and where do you come from? <laughs> sure. So uh, so I uh, was born in Erie, as we sort of uh, just, just talked about briefly, uh, Erie, Pennsylvania. But um, when I was very young, my parents uh, moved out to Seattle. That's where my mother is from and, and her family was in Seattle. So I grew up in the Seattle area, actually not too far from the University of Washington, where I've spent the last 20 years of my career uh, working. Grew up in Seattle. Um you know, I guess I would say I was in many ways a, a late bloomer uh, when it comes to science. I, uh, in high school, was not very serious about academics, um, spent a lot of time doing stuff that I probably shouldn't have been doing at that age, um, and really didn't start paying a lot of attention to academics or science until after I'd uh, gotten out of high school. I'm going to go on a brief digression, but this is an important formative aspect to my uh my life was so after high school, I actually got a job working at United Parcel Service unloading trucks. So they, you know, they, they do the seasonal hires every Christmas. Um, <laughs> and that was that was actually a, a, a problem for my family because I come from a long line of United States postal workers. So I was sort of the black sheep, brown sheep of the family working at United Parcel Service. But so anyways, I got a job unloading trucks at, at UPS and they realized that I was smart enough that I could look at the address and figure out where it was supposed to go. So I got moved from the unloading of the trucks to the sorting of the packages, right? So that's how they estimated my uh, academic potential. Um, but that wasn't enough. So that was getting up at three in the morning to unload trucks for UPS. But then I needed a second job. So I started working for Safelite Autoglass delivering car windshields in the evening. And then I quickly realized I did not want to do that for the rest of my life. Um, and so I better start taking my academics seriously. And I was very fortunate around that time. Two things happened. One, I met the woman who is now my wife. And that sort of helped me to grow up. Um, that's probably the most important thing that's happened in my life. But I also had a really fantastic biology teacher in a you know undergrad hundred level course that I was taking at the time at a junior college, and that's really what turned me on to science and biology. And you know the principles of natural selection and evolution really resonated with me. And I came from a pretty religious family background, and I'd sort of you know recognized that I didn't buy into a lot of what what was part of that formal religious um, component. And the evolution and natural selection just resonated with me. And so I think it was just a matter of being in the, the right maturity phase of my life and being exposed to a really fantastic teacher that got me into biology and sort of set me on the path that I then you know have been on since. The other really formative thing that got me into the, the field that I'm in now was, so I did my undergraduate um, degrees at Western Washington University here in the state of Washington in biochemistry and mathematics. I went to graduate school at MIT thinking I was going to do x-ray crystallography or structural biology or something like that. And I heard a talk by a professor there named Lenny Garenti, who's kind of famous in the longevity field. Um, 
uh, how he he talked about how his lab had at that time just recently started studying the genetics of longevity and and aging. Um, and it just turned me on again. It was like, I, you know, the same sort of experience, a really fantastic mentor and teacher in the form of Lenny turned me on to this idea I'd never thought of before, which is that you could use, you know, genetics, molecular biology, biochemistry to study aging. And so I went to his lab for my PhD and have been, you know, working on that problem in one way, shape or form since then. And so that's really what, what kind of got me on the the path that I'm on now. But I guess I would say if I had to sum up, you know, who am I? I come from very humble backgrounds. Like I was the first person in my family to graduate from college. Definitely the first person to get a PhD. You know, I, I, I think when I went to graduate school, I had no idea what graduate school even meant, you know? So, so I sort of approach everything in my life from, from the perspective that, you know, I come from humble beginnings and and I feel very, very grateful and lucky in many ways to to be where I'm at today. Well, we have to applaud that progression and what an intriguing story. I really do appreciate you sharing all of that because one thing that it shows me is that not every professor, scientist, doctor, biologist that we meet comes from the same place. Yeah. You know, you went to junior college, you grew up in a religious household that believed in creation. And you kind of had your own personal evolution because of what you were exposed to that opened you up to a different way of thinking. And it got you interested in biology. And you didn't just take that and say, well, now I know, now I feel differently. You took that and you have a whole career based off your personal evolution, which I really do admire. So so thank you. And I feel like a lot of our listeners can probably relate to that, relate to your story, to, to let them know, like, you know what, even if I'm such and such an age, I can pivot into an incredible yeah. field. So I think that's you. really that's really important and again that's one thing that I would I would tell you know anybody but especially young people you know who are you know maybe either in high school or just got out of high school or even in your mid mid 20s right you know it, it, it's not too late to go in a different direction and find your passion and 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 look I am I am constantly amazed at some of the really, really talented, super smart young people that are out there today. You know, and I see these kids, kids, I see these, these 20 year old, 22 year old kids, you know, who are so far ahead of where I was at that point. And it, that just amazes me. But I also think, you know, look, if you're 23, 24, 25, doesn't matter. Um, if you haven't found what you're passionate about, it's not too late, right? Don't stop looking, I guess, is, is what I would say. And you can go into a career in all sorts of fields. But but I, my experience was obviously in, in science. You know, you can still find that path. So, so different people get to the point where they are open to or fertile ground for their future and finding that future at different points. And so don't don't worry too much about it if you're not there yet. You can still get there. And I, I'm a perfect example of that. I think I was, I, I didn't graduate from my undergrad uh, until I was, uh, let's see, that would have been uh, 97. So I would have been 26 when I graduated from my undergrad. So I was, you know, if you look at it like the progression, I was four or five years behind my peers at, at that point. So, you know, you, you, you don't have to, you don't have to go on the one one track and know exactly where you're going to get to when you're 16, 17, 18. Love it. I love how inspirational this episode is becoming. <laughs> so uh, what I want to ask you now is what is your definition of aging and what is your definition of health span and why did you choose to focus on that? Sure. So, so I would say, first of all, there is not one definition of aging. And I think definitions are really important. So when I think about aging, and this is, again, you know, like all of us, the way that we define words is framed by our experiences. So when I think about aging, because of my what I've been doing for the last 20 some years, I think of the biology of aging. So I'm thinking about, you know, what are the genetic, molecular, biochemical mechanisms that are that cause a young organism or animal to become old. And then all of the stuff that goes along with that. And, and there are a whole bunch, obviously, of changes that happen as we age at the biological level. Unfortunately, many of those changes are associated with poor health outcomes and age-related diseases. But that's really the way I think about aging. That's certainly not the only way you can think about aging. And I think one of the reasons why sometimes we have these some disagreements in this space is because people are 
defining that word differently. And, and a good example of this is, you know, there's this debate about, is aging a disease? Um, I really think that depends on what you mean when you talk about aging, right? And I think some people have a visceral negative gut reaction to even asking that question because it feels like ageism. It feels like, you know, you're discriminating against older people. And so that's why I think definitions are just, just really important. I would argue that, that, first of all, I would argue that's the wrong question to be asking. But, but I would also say, I think you can come up with a reasonable um, position that aging is a disease if you're thinking about it from the perspective of the biology of aging. But you have to recognize not everybody is thinking about it in that way. So long-winded answer, but I think those are sort of important um, concepts to, to appreciate. So health span, I think, is a little bit that also is a, a complicated definition, but I think there there's a little bit more consensus around what we mean when we talk about health span. I think the definition that most people would use to define health span is the period of life that's spent in, this is sort of a circular definition, in relatively good health. But what we mean by that is a, is free from chronic disease and disability. So the period of life where you are basically functioning at the level that you want to be able to function at and you're not sick, you're free from chronic disease and disability. The thing I think that's really important to appreciate about health span, and most people in this field, while I think they, they, they understand this when they think about it, they don't keep it in the forefront of their their thought process is health span is not a quantitative term. And what I mean by that is we don't have a way to measure health span that everybody agrees on. There is not a number that you can point to to say this individual's health span is X. It is a qualitative concept. And I think in that, when we use it that way, it's very powerful because people get it, right? You get the idea that there's a period of life where you're in good health and a period of life where you're maybe not in as good of health. But when we start trying to say we can measure health span, that's where it gets a little squishy. And the reason why I, I explicitly call this out is if you look in the scientific literature, you'll see this all the time. You'll see that in the titles of papers, people claiming that, you know, drug X increases health span in mice or what, whatever organism. And the problem with that is that as scientists, we're only supposed to claim that we have increased or decreased something when we can measure it. So if you're claiming you've, that you've increased something you can't measure, that's a problem. You can't statistically actually show that you have increased or decreased health span. So that's why, I, that's why I call that out. But I do think it is important to appreciate this idea that health span is a really, really useful concept. It's not so useful as something that we measure. We can measure specific, what I would call health span metrics, like how well is your heart functioning? How fast can you run? How high can you jump? What's your grip strength? How well is your kidney working? We can measure those things, but we can't actually measure health span as a whole at this point. Matt, thank you so much for sharing um, your definitions of um, health span and longevity. What is your relationship with death? Because death, I mean, you can't debate that. If you're dead, you're dead, you're not, you're not breathing. But I'm just curious, what is your relationship with death? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can measure death. Um, <laughs> so I, that's a, it's a good question. Um, I, you know, I... I I would say I, I don't, I, I'm not, I, I guess I shouldn't say I'm not afraid of death. I think like everybody, right? I have uncertainty about what, um, you know, what death really means. Is there anything after death? I don't know. I haven't been there. Um, so I guess what I would say though, is I'm accepting of death. I'm certainly not one of those people who strongly believes that, you know, immortality is around the corner. I'm also not one of those people who says that immortality is impossible. I don't particularly like people talking about immortality as if that's the goal in the sense that we are anywhere near achieving that. I think it's misleading to, 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 to talk about it as if that's something realistic that, that we're close to achieving. I'm not against immortality, but, um, but I, I would say I'm not somebody who expects that I'm not going to die. Right. And I do think there are people out there who, who really believe that. So, you know, I think it's, 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 it's something that, that um, is sort of inevitable, or at least it has been throughout all of human history, and I'm not particularly worried about it. I don't dwell on it. I'm much more, from a personal perspective, I'm much more concerned about maintaining a high quality of life for as long as I possibly can for myself and my loved ones and, and, and everybody else to the extent that that's possible. 
um, and not so not so worried about you know the fact that someday I'm going to die. Yeah, I don't know if that answered your question. It did. I, I also I think like a lot of people, I don't think a lot about it, right? I mean, I, I'm not somebody who broods about the fact that you know at some point I'm going to die and and you know my loved ones are going to die. I do, I do, I don't brood about it. I, I am more bothered by the fact that at some point in the, you know, nearer future, my dog is going to die. That, that bothers me. But yeah. again, you know, it's, it's something that we have to recognize as a reality of, of life. And, and to your point, um, that's why I want to pivot into um, the dog aging project, which you've started. Um, and yeah. why, why dogs and how do dogs come into the mix um, with this project? Um, and will we be able to have pups or Fido be able to live the same length as humans at some point? Yeah, so I'll answer the last question okay. first, which again, I, I, I would port, sort of put that, so so will dogs live as long as humans? Yeah. That's not quite as far-fetched as the immortality um, possibility, but it, we're still really, really far away from that. And so here's, here's one way I would sort of frame expectations. Um, what we as a field, as a scientific community, have been successful at doing is roughly doubling the lifespan of a mouse, maybe not quite that. And that's through some, some pretty serious genetic tricks. From a single sort of lifestyle intervention, like caloric restriction, the best anybody's ever done is increase lifespan by about 60%, okay? So if you just do a straight linear extrapolation from that, let's say you've got a medium to large size dog that's gonna live 14 years, if you add 50% onto that, it's going to live 21 years, right? Okay, so that's kind of like the outer range of what has ever been possible to date. So that's kind of where I would say, is it reasonable to expect that in dogs? Maybe. Like, I think that might be doable in the relatively near future, but we're not talking about 80-year-old dogs. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying nobody has even come close to doing that in simpler laboratory studies. So there's really no reason to believe that that's likely to happen in the near future in dogs or, or in people. Okay, so that's kind of that, that first question. But do I think that there is an opportunity to significantly increase the healthy longevity of pet dogs? Absolutely. In fact, I would say it's a near certainty. It's really more a matter of having the resources to actually be able to do the research and, and, and getting that up and running and showing that that's the case. I would be shocked if some of the interventions that we're studying right now in laboratory animals don't increase healthy lifespan in dogs by a percentage that's roughly equivalent to what we can do in mice. So I think it is very, very likely that there are interventions today that could increase healthy lifespan in dogs by 20, 30, maybe even 40%. It's just really a matter of being able to do the research and, and demonst demonstrate that. Um, so why dogs? Uh, I think there are lots of reasons. For me personally, I've always been a dog person. Um, I love my, my German Shepherd, Dobby, very much. Uh, it, as I've already mentioned, you know, it bothers me on an almost daily basis that he's getting old and slowing down and that I know, you know, he's probably not going to be with us five years from now, right? And that's almost a certainty. So, so that's part of it, right? I've, I, part of the reason why, you know, I started the Dog Aging Project along with Daniel Promislow and Kate Creevy, you know, 10 years ago or so. Um, was because I want my dogs to live longer. Um, but also, I, you know, and, and as part of that, I've always had dogs. I recognize they're a part of my family. And for many, many dog owners, they consider their dogs to be part of their family. And it, it resonated with me that if, if we're successful at actually understanding the biology of aging, but in my view, more importantly, positively impacting health span and lifespan in pet dogs. That's really, really important to a lot of people. From a pragmatic perspective, because dogs age biologically about seven to 10 times faster than people do, it meant we could do it in a reasonable time frame. So, you know, it becomes much more plausible to do a clinical trial for something like rapamycin, which, which we'll probably talk about, which we're doing in the Dog Aging Project. It becomes much more plausible to do that clinical trial in dogs and actually prove that you can have an impact on health span and lifespan, as opposed to trying to do a two or three decade clinical trial in people. So that was also a big part of it was we thought, okay, this is something we can actually do, you know, in a reasonable time frame. Thank you, Matt. Um, and I guess if you'd like, I, I think it would be great to just get into the the Dog Aging Project, what it is, share with our listeners about the project, the different cohorts, um, and what you're researching. Yeah. 
Sure. Now, so I, I want I want to just uh, I want to read the definition before you start. Okay. Sure. Okay. So the Dog Aging Project is an is an innovative initiative that brings together a community of dogs, owners, veterinarians, researchers, and volunteers to carry out the most ambitious canine health study in the world. The Dog Aging Project will follow tens of thousands of companion dogs for ten years in order to identify the biological and environmental factors that maximize healthy longevity. Yeah, that, that's great. And that, that was put together by our very talented communications team at the Dog Aging Project. Um, so yeah, so the Dog Aging Project, the only thing I would, the only thing I would, I would tweak a little bit in that is the Dog Aging Project isn't necessarily a 10-year project. So I think that number, you know, that's about how long you need to get most of the way through the lifespan of a typical dog. But I, it is our hope and expectation that the project will certainly go longer than, than 10 years. Okay, so so let me take a step back and, and say, I would frame it as there are really two um, overlapping but distinct goals for the Dog Aging Project. The first goal, which is, which is what most of the Dog Aging Project is aimed towards, is really to understand the biology of aging in pet dogs or companion dogs. We've kind of moved to using that word companion instead of pet, but I'm gonna use them interchangeably. So understand the biology of aging in companion dogs in order to really be able to pinpoint the most important genetic and environmental factors that influence health span and lifespan. Okay, and we're doing that through what's called a longitudinal study of aging. And all that really means, longitudinal, all that really means is measuring the same dogs multiple times as they go throughout their life, okay? So, so the way that we're doing that is dogs are enrolled into what we call the Dog Aging Project Pack. That's the largest group within the Dog Aging Project. And we collect very extensive health history and environmental information on those dogs through an owner survey, which is called the Health and Life Experiences Survey. So owners come to the website, dogagingproject.org, they nominate their dog, they create an owner portal, or we create it for them within the, within the Dog Aging Project, and they complete this survey, which is 10 modules all online. Once they do that, they're part of the Dog Aging Project pack, and that is the largest piece of data we get on every dog, is that Health and Life Experiences Survey. Then every year, they're asked to update that survey, and that's where it becomes longitudinal, so we get information on the same dogs over time. We have now, it's probably just over 45,000 dogs in the pack now, as of this week. So it's pretty big. Um, when owners complete HLES and become part of the pack, they get a certificate with their pack number. So if you go do that, you can see exactly how many dogs we have in the pack, because you'll be 45,000 and whatever it is, 24. Um, once they do that, they're asked to provide electronic medical records. So that's what comes from the veterinarian. So that means the owners will email their vet, say, can you send me my dog's records? And then you upload it to the website. Owners who do that become eligible for the sampled cohorts. And that's where we get into the more biological pieces. So 10,000 dogs get their genome sequenced. Um, that's the foundation group. And then 1,000 dogs get selected for what's called the precision group. That's more like what we would call a systems biology group. So every year, the owners are sent a sample kit. They take their dog to their veterinarian, and we get metabolome, microbiome, epigenome, all of these high-dimensional types of data that people in the field are very interested in for understanding biomarkers of aging and, and disease. Um, we also have a dementia cohort, which is called the brain health study. So this is really understanding what are the factors that connect the biology of aging to cognitive function or cognitive dysfunction. A lot of people don't know this, but, but dogs do, some dogs do develop dementia. It's called canine cognitive dysfunction. We have a cognitive survey that the owners complete to measure cognitive function every year on all the dogs in the pack. So we have a dedicated brain health study. And then we also have what, what's called a centenarian dog study. And, and centenarian is a word that means people that live to be more than 100 years old. These aren't dogs that live to be more than 100 years old yet, as we've already talked about. These are dogs that live, you know, much longer than we would expect them to live based on their body size. Uh, and so the idea there is can we identify primarily genetic factors, but maybe also environmental factors that are associated with extreme longevity in dogs. So that's all part of the longitudinal study of aging, which is, again, really designed to understand the biology of aging. The last thing I'll say about that, and I think this is important for people to understand, is 
That kind of a longitudinal observational study is extremely powerful for identifying correlations. What it's not powerful for is identifying causation, right? So we can find things that are associated. So we may want to get into this, but for example, one of the studies we found was that dogs that are fed once a day are significantly less likely to have been diagnosed with a whole bunch of different age-related diseases. So does that mean that once a day feeding causes an increase in health span? No, it doesn't mean that. It means it's an association. And it could be that something like dogs fed once a day are less likely to be obese, and it's really the obesity that's causal there. But I just think it's important for people to understand that it's a correlative by nature kind of data. And we can differentiate that from a clinical trial where we can actually determine causation. So that's the other piece of the dog aging project, which is, so part number one, longitudinal, learn about the biology of aging. Part number two, do something about it. And that's, that's where I'm most excited about because I want my dog to live longer and I want other people's dogs to live longer. So we have one clinical trial right now, which is a clinical trial of the drug rapamycin. And the goal there is really to test whether or not rapamycin can increase lifespan and various health span metrics in companion dogs. And so that's called TRIAD for test of rapamycin in aging dogs. I'm happy to go into all the details on the study if you if you guys want to, but I think for now it's just it's 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 worth just saying this is a double blind randomized placebo controlled veterinary clinical trial. So this is a clinical trial done to the very highest standards of clinical trials at the same way you would do a clinical trial in people, really designed to test, does rapamycin increase lifespan and health span metrics in pet dogs? And so we are currently actively enrolling dogs in that trial. We've got about 100 dogs that are currently in the trial now. We want to get up to 580 and, uh, and we're, we're, we're really pushing right now to get, to get uh, fully enrolled for that trial. Matt, how many um, dogs have been enrolled since the very beginning of the project 10 years ago? You mean in the clinical trial or yeah. in the dog aging project the, the, overall? Yeah, the dog aging project overall. What's the longest that a yeah, dog Yeah, that's where that 45,000 number comes in. Okay. But the vast majority of those. So just to give you guys some context is, you know, we <laughs> when I say we started the dog aging project uh, 10 years ago, I'll give you guys the, in, the inside scoop here. So really the way this evolved. So Daniel and Katie um, had been thinking about dogs as a model for aging for a while. And they'd been kind of trying to plan out a, a longitudinal study of aging. And and I really got excited about this after talking with Daniel at, um, so we co-directed a summer course at Woods Hole on the biology of aging. And again, it immediately occurred to me that, well, it, yeah, it'd be awesome to learn about aging in dogs, but maybe we can make dogs live longer. So I got really excited about a rapamycin clinical trial and went out and raised about $100,000 to, to do this pilot rapamycin clinical trial. And as I was in the process of raising the money for that, I was, I was being actually interviewed by a reporter for Nature about a completely different story. Like somebody had written a paper, I don't even remember what the paper was about, something about aging. She was interviewing me and somehow in that conversation, it came up that I was raising money for this clinical trial to test rapamycin in dogs. And she thought, well, that's way more interesting than the story I was going to write. So she wrote this 600 word, you know, thing about scientists are testing rapamycin for lifespan in dogs. And then the next thing I know, it's picked up by, you know, the Daily Mail in the UK and the local Seattle Times. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, crap, <laughs> we're going to have a bunch of people who want to participate in this clinical trial. What do we do? And so my wife and I basically <laughs> built a website over the weekend and we're like, what are we going to call this thing? We're like, well, it's, it's about dog aging. Let's call it the dog aging project. <laughs> and so, so we built this website, put it up. And, you know, by like Tuesday, we had, I don't know, a thousand people who wanted to be in this, this clinical trial that, you know, I still was raising money for. So, so, that, so that's how it started. And, and, you know, we did this, so we did a 10 week a clinical trial for safety in dogs with rapamycin. We also looked at heart function with echocardiograms. And we learned two things from that trial. One was that, that rapamycin, indeed, we could, we could test safely in dogs. So we found no evidence for side effects. But interestingly, we actually found some evidence for improvements in age-related heart function in just 10 weeks, which very well mirrored what other people had already seen in mice. So that paper was actually published back in 2017. So it was like 2015 when we were doing that first 10-week clinical trial. It was only 24 dogs. It was very small. It was local here in the Seattle area. But that allowed us to then bootstrap to get about $250,000 
to do a longer clinical trial. That was done in 2017, 2018. It really wasn't until 2019 that we got a large NIH grant to build what is now the Dog Aging Project. So we built that from like June 2019 to November 2019. We then had a, a comp, sort of a coming out party where we announced the Dog Aging Project. Uh, and then of course, COVID-19 hit three months later. So, <laughs> mm -hmm. so then we spent the next two years, you know, really building the in infrastructure. And in some ways, COVID-19, it was really hard for us, but looking back, I would actually say it was quite valuable because it forced us, instead of really rushing to try to do as much science as we could, which is what we would have done, we're scientists. Um, we couldn't because, you know, clinics were closed, you know, owners were, were not able to get their dogs to the veterinary clinics. Um, so we really focused on really building a rock solid infrastructure, which is what we've got now, which has allowed us to now, you know, we've got 45,000 dogs in the pipeline and we're not even worried about it. We'd love to get 145,000 because we know our infrastructure can handle it. So, so it, COVID slowed everything down, but in some ways, again, looking back in, in hindsight, I can see that there were, it was actually kind of valuable for us because it really forced us to focus on doing it right and building it right. And I think, and I think we have, but that's kind of the history of the dog, the dog aging project, the, the, the inside scoop. We love, we love the inside scoop. I think that, <laughs> that, uh, that story is perfect, man. <laughs> the dog aging project. You can't change that name ever now. No, 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 it's, it's, and actually it's perfect. It fits. The one downside to the dog aging project is we've noticed that we have been underrepresented for very young dogs. I think because people hear dog aging project, think it's a project only for old dogs. So we're, we've, we're being very um, active in trying to recruit young dogs into the longitudinal study in particular, because we really want to know throughout the entire life course, you know, what does aging look like? Not just what does aging look like in old dogs? Okay, it's good to know as well too. It's it's aging from from as early as you can get them yeah. for sure. So any any age, any breed, any size, any sex. We want we want all the dogs. Puppies are great. We love puppies. <laughs> Who doesn't? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay, so so here's a, here's another question because you mentioned triad. We're very interested in hearing about it because you know we we hear about rapamycin. Typically, it has to do with humans. Not so popular to hear about it being used with dogs. So. If that's your current project, tell us all about Triad, and then is there a crossover with the dog aging project research, um, you know, with with humans or with some with anything else? Yeah, sure. So, so again, Triad really is the clinical trial to test whether rapamycin can increase lifespan and health span metrics in dogs, and the rationale for that comes from all of the preclinical work, and by preclinical I mean laboratory studies in model organisms mice all the way down to, to fruit flies and worms and even single-celled yeast. So just, I'm not, I won't go through all of the data to suggest that rapamycin could have a positive effect in dogs. I'll just simply say we can increase lifespan and a whole bunch of health span metrics in all of the laboratory model organisms where it's been studied using either rapamycin, the drug, or genetically inhibiting uh, the, the target of rapamycin, which is called mTOR. Uh, so there's, there's just reams of data supporting the idea that turning down mTOR either genetically or with rapamycin slows aging, slows biological aging, increases lifespan, and increases a whole bunch of health span metrics in all of the model organisms where it's been tested. I do think it's worth saying in mice that the data on health span metrics is for rapamycin is um, probably greater than any other intervention that, that people have studied. I would even say including caloric restriction, but you could debate about caloric restriction. But pretty much every organ and tissue where people have looked, you can see a delay in age-related pathology and functional decline in mice treated with rapamycin. What's really exciting there's two things about rapamycin that I think are particularly relevant for human use and, and potentially use in dogs in this context. One is you can start the treatment in middle age and still get most or all of the benefits, meaning you can take the mouse equivalent of a 60, 65-year-old person, start the treatment then, you still get the benefits in terms of lifespan and health span metrics. So that's really important from a clinical trial perspective, obviously, and from a translational perspective. The other thing that's that's even more surprising than that, I think, to me is at least for a few, few tissues and organs, you can actually see improvements 
when you start the treatment with rapamycin. So it's not only the case that we're slowing the decline that goes along with aging, but we can actually see functional improvements in uh, heart, brain, ovaries, which is super interesting, periodontal disease, so the oral cavity, and the immune system, which is also kind of interesting given that rapamycin has been used clinically as an immune suppressant. So in all of those places, you can take an old mouse, you start treating them with rapamycin and things get better from a functional uh, perspective. So again, from when you think about doing a clinical trial, that's kind of, that's a really positive thing because it's much easier to measure an improvement in something than to measure a change in the slope of the decline. So those are some of the reasons why we thought rapamycin is a good intervention to test in dogs. If we can only test one, you kind of want to give yourself the best shot on goal. And that's, that's why, why we picked rapamycin. Um, so triad then, I mentioned we did two clinical trials before triad to, to demonstrate safety, to kind of dial in the dosing. Uh, we saw no evidence for significant side effects in either of those clinical trials. In one of the trials, we saw some evidence for improved heart function. In both of the trials, we saw evidence for owner-reported uh, increases in activity. So again, nothing I would say you know is, is strongly uh, demonstrating efficacy, but we had some hints, at least, that, that there could be efficacy from rapamycin from those shorter trials. So we set up triad. The goal is to enroll 580 dogs. The length of the trial is three years. It's a one-year treatment period two-year follow-up, half the dogs get placebo, half the dogs get rapamycin, it's double blind, or if you want to count the dogs, it's triple blind, meaning the veterinarians don't know, the owners don't know, the dogs don't know which one they're getting. Um, so one-year treatment, two-year follow-up, every six months and at baseline, the owners bring their dog to one of the partner clinical sites. These are all veterinary clinics. Most of them are veterinary teaching hospitals, although we do have some, some private practice clinics as well now. They, they get, um, the dogs get, get branched into one of two specialty arms. There's a cardiac arm. So all of the dogs in the cardiac arm get um, cardiac exams, echocardiograms every six months. And then there's a neurology arm and all the dogs in the neurology arm get a neurological exam. So, so uh, and then all of the dogs every six months get a full veterinary workup, blood work, metabolome, microbiome, epigenome, um, uh, and then uh, and then we're also monitoring survival, right? So the reason why, and the dogs have to be at least seven years old and between 40 and 110 pounds to come into the study. They also can't be sick. So this is a study of normal aging, healthy aging. They can't have a significant pre-existing condition. So the reason why the dogs have to be that weight and age and why it's a three-year study is because that's what gives us the statistical power to detect a change in lifespan. So the primary endpoint, and, and this will really only mean anything to people who sort of understand clinical trials, but the primary endpoint for this clinical trial, which is what we are statistically powered to measure, is lifespan. That's kind of important because this is really the first clinical trial in any, any system where lifespan has been the primary endpoint, and it's not in the context of a disease. So if in a cancer clinical trial, you can use survival as the primary endpoint, but that's because most of the cancer patients, and if you design your clinical trial, are gonna die within 12 months, 18 months, 24 months. This is the first time this has been done in the context of normal aging. So lifespan's the primary endpoint. We are powered to detect a 9% change in lifespan. But of course, we're interested in health span, so we're measuring a whole bunch of health span metrics. I already talked about echocardiograms, neurological function, cognitive function, activity, kidney function, you know, all the stuff you can get from blood work. So we're using all of those and disease incidents as health span metrics that are what are called secondary endpoints. But lifespan is really the primary endpoint for the clinical trial. Matt, how expensive is rapamycin and what's the dosage and the frequency for the for the dogs? Yeah. So, um, you know, it really depends on, on where you buy it from. It's, okay. it's probably around $5 a milligram for the generic uh, rapamycin. Um, we're actually using a, a specific veterinary formulation of rapamycin that is being developed by a company called Trivium Vet. So they're actually developing this veterinary formulation first for use in cats, 
for hypertrophic hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and then also in dogs for dilated cardiomyopathy. So we're using that formulation. And the only reason I say that is because it's not, you can't just go buy it, right? It's a, it's a, it's a formulation that's still being, being developed. But if you go by the generic, it's about $5 a milligram. Um, you might be able to get a little less, a little more. Um, so we are testing a dose of 0.15 milligrams per kilogram once a week. So I usually don't spend a lot of time talking about the dose because it doesn't really mean anything. I mean, that's the dose. Uh, the reason we picked that dose, there's a whole, so this is where you really start to get in the weeds pretty quickly. But the, 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 the simple answer is when, when you design a clinical trial, you really have to take a bunch of educated guesses because you kind of have to pick, right? You can't do everything. So the reason why we selected that dose was based on our two previous clinical trials so we've tested doses both below and above that dose. Um, we're confident that the blood levels that we measure are in the range that we want them to be in, in terms of you know, where we expect to see some efficacy. And we're confident we're, we're very unlikely to see significant side effects, right? And so, and that's super important in a, in a companion dog study. I, I, again, you know, when I say it, it's kind of obvious, but, but most people don't think about it from the outset. When you're doing a clinical trial in people's pets, especially when they're healthy older dogs, it's very much like a pediatric clinical trial in humans, right? Many people feel about their dog the same way that they feel about their kids. And so you really wanna be sure you're not gonna hurt anybody's dog. And so we, in some ways, you know, um, I think rightly so, but we had to err on the side of caution. And you know, that's one of my concerns. And again, I, I said, you kind of have to make some guesses when you're designing a clinical trial, one of my concerns is maybe our dose is suboptimal, too low, you know, because we erred on the side of caution, because we should have. I mean, I, you know, it's a sort of a catch-22, but, um, but that is part of the reality of trying to, to design these, these sorts of clinical trials. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a risk-reward calculation, you know, and when you're working in people's pets, the tolerance for risk, especially when they're healthy, is pretty low. And so, Matt, I have another question for you. Um, you know, they say that um, we tend to look like our pets, right? And um, <laughs> are you seeing a correlation? So say, you know, for example, down here in the South, you know, there's a lot of diabetes and there's a lot of obesity. Mm. And so are you seeing a yeah. correlation? Because Good you question. did share that it's environmental, you know, it's genetic and environmental. Are you seeing obesity and diabetes, a higher prevalence in those dogs where that's also seen in their owners? or depression. Yeah, that's a, that's or, a good question. So there, yeah. there have get, yeah, yeah, there have definitely been studies that have reported that. I actually, I should know the answer and I don't in our data set. I don't know the answer, but super good question. So I'm going to find out. Um, <laughs> okay. No, I, I suspect you, I suspect you will at some, at some level. It is absolutely the case that, you know, uh, activity levels and obesity correlate between owners and dogs, right? So, you know, owners who are sedentary, are less likely, obviously, to take their dogs for walks, more likely to be obese. The dog is also more likely to be obese. But I don't know in our data set that we should, I should know the answer to that. You, you, you know what? You just told me I'm not doing my job because I, I really should know the answer to that. But I, but I don't. It's, it, 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 um, we have the data. Let me yeah. put it that way. But yeah. this is a good time to plug the fact that the project is an open data project. So, and the reason why I'm saying that is, you know, one of our core values is we want to make all of the data that we collect available to the to the community because we recognize that there are so many really interesting questions that can be asked with this massive amount of data. I don't know Daniel Daniel told me the other day like it's something like we have 56 million data points in our data set right now which is crazy to think about. So so that it's available to the scientific community we release it on an annual basis. Go to the website dogagingproject.org. There's a get it data access, very simple data use agreement and and the reason I'm saying that is, is people who have questions like you just asked with a data science background can go download the data and find out, right? And right. Find out and publish it. Go do that, please. Um, so so I, I, we really want to encourage people to get access to the data and take advantage of it and, and answer really interesting questions like you just asked. Where can they go find this uh, academic data? Yeah, so it's 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 on the homepage of the website dogagingproject.org. There's a button at the top that I think says data access or something like that, and you just click on it, and it'll take you to the data use agreement, which is pretty easy. So so the data use agreement right now is set up 
uh, primarily for nonprofits and academics. We're still working out what the data use agreement looks like for for-profit entities, but for nonprofits or academics um, or just individuals, very easy uh, data use agreement to get, get full access. Just, what do you think are some longevity myths that are out there? Oh, there's a whole bunch of them. Um, so look, I mean, we already talked about, you know, this question of, of immortality and, and longevity escape velocity. I don't want to say that those are myths in the sense that they're impossible, but I think it's a myth to, uh, to make it out as if that's likely to happen in the near future, right? So, you know, as a scientist, I can never say, I can never say never. Like, I can't say that it's impossible we're gonna get there. But I, I, earlier I talked about why there's really no reason to believe that we are anywhere near even doubling the lifespan of a person, let alone, you know, reaching longevity escape velocity. So the people who talk about that um, are usually naive about biology. They don't understand the complexity of the biology. Um, and it seems to me that they are often more interested in getting attention for themselves than they are you know, actually presenting an accurate picture of, of where the science is at. I will say a lot of people have gotten interested in the field because they first heard about longevity escape velocity and that, that's fine. But I do think it is, a, it is a myth to be misleading people to think that we're anywhere near accomplishing that. So that, that would be one. Um, another myth I think is that, and it's not, I don't know if it's a myth that people have, some people have a visceral gut reaction against the idea of life extension, because certainly some people do, but I think it's a little bit of a myth. It's a myth that targeting the biology of aging is going to make people live longer in sickness, right? So I think the reason why some people have a negative gut reaction to trying to increase longevity is because they think, well, I don't want to live longer, you know, with three age-related diseases, you know, not, you know, not being able to, to function the way I want to. The reality is what we've seen from the, all of the laboratory studies that have been done is when we modulate the biology of aging, we actually extend health span at least proportionally to lifespan, if not more than proportionally. So the goal here is really about pushing the diseases of aging back as far as possible and maximizing health span, not just extending the, the decrepit period of, of old age. So that's a little bit of a, of a myth. Um, another myth is that there's you know, scientific proof that any of the supplements people are out there hawking can extend lifespan or health span in people. Um, I'm not saying none of them can. I'm just saying anybody who tells you that this has been clinically proven to increase lifespan or health span is lying to you. There is nothing, nothing on the supplement market that has been clinically proven to do that. So there's a lot of snake oil. There's, there's really not a lot that has been actually shown to, to work. There are things where I think there are, you know, more or less evidence, and we could certainly talk about some of those, but, um, you know, there's obviously a whole bunch of people selling stuff and, and making misleading claims. And, and again, I think, I think most people are smart enough to recognize that, that, you know, this may or may not help me, but, but some people actually believe it because unfortunately some of the people selling these things have credentials and, and people tend to believe credentials when they shouldn't. But I'll just say there are dishonest people with credentials, just like there are dishonest people without credentials out there. So I'm sure I could come up with a bunch of other myths, but, um, but that's, a, that's a starter list for you. <laughs> oh, thank you, Matt. So speaking of books, um, as we wrap up this, this um, episode, so last two questions. Um, what are you currently reading? What is on your nightstand? Yeah, so, so I'm actually most of the way through Peter Atiyah's uh, book, okay. uh, which is fantastic. I don't know if people have, have read it or not, but, um, uh, it's, uh, I mean, I, so I, I will first say that, um, you know, there are a lot of people in this space who are influencers for lack of a better word, who have podcasts and, and things like that. Um, most of them in my view are not particularly credible. Peter is one of the few uh, authoritative and credible voices in this space out there, I would say. I don't agree with everything. For, and I should say Peter's a friend of mine too, so obviously I'm a little biased by that. I like him personally. But but I think part of the reason why I like him personally is because he's very credible and he actually tries. You know, we all make mistakes, but he actually tries to get it right. 
Um, so, so I would recommend, uh, I would recommend his book, um, uh, to anyone. Uh, and it's, uh, it's called Outlive and, uh, and it's really good. So that's one that I'm, I'm most of the way through. Uh, and, and, uh, like I said, I think it's, it's just a very, very solid, um, representation of not just the biology of aging, but, uh, but also more pragmatically uh, increasing your likelihood of being healthy. So that's another thing that I think is important for people to appreciate, right? The, the, the biology of aging, targeting the biology of aging is a very, very powerful tool to uh, improve healthcare and improve health span for people. But you also gotta not die, right? So Matt's rule number one of longevity is don't die, okay? Remember that. <laughs> <laughs> and so part of that is part of that is making sure that you don't already have a disease that's going to kill you or doing the things that, you know, that will very that will reduce your risk of developing age related diseases that are maybe not directly tied into the biology of aging. Right. And so those are things like not smoking. Um, so at Peter, Peter addresses, I think, uh, longevity from that perspective very well. So it's a very it comes from a very sort of medical perspective but ties into the science of, of aging. So again, that was a long answer, but uh, but that's that's the book that I'm in the middle of mostly through, I guess I should say right now. Um, there's a few others that I'm that I'm reading. Uh, I don't know that any of them I would strongly recommend at this point. Okay, <laughs> that's fair. And okay, now our last question we'd love to ask our our, our um, interviewees: What is your favorite music album of all time? And it's only one album. Ah, only one. Yeah, boy, that's a that's a tough one. I want to I want to get this right. So it's it's gonna be it's gonna be one of the uh, '80s Metallica albums. I don't know if I can pick. Probably, probably kill them all. Okay. Kill them all. Just kill them all. The, the lightning and master of puppets, <laughs> and they're all really good. Uh, but I, I probably have to go with kill them all. All right. Awesome. What a way to wrap up this longevity discussion. <laughs> would, would you have guessed that was my answer? Probably not. No, that's why we asked the question. Yeah, yeah, the books, we, well, the books we, we tend really... to be on longevity. They tend to be, you know, sure. in line with it. But yeah. music, I think it's like, wow, I wasn't expecting All that All over one. the place. Yeah, I yeah. love it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I, yeah, I was yeah, definitely, yeah. A, I was definitely a headbanger in, in my youth. Head hair down in the middle of my back, played in a rock Oh, band. yeah. Um, awesome. Yeah. Rock on. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know I, I feel like, I feel like our listeners are definitely going to get a, a different perspective. <laughs> of you from this interview. Really appreciate having you here. Uh, before sure we go, any last comments? How can we find you? How can we support you? Things like that. Yeah, so uh, I, finding finding me is a good question. I need to actually work on my website. So I'm on Twitter, at mkberline. Um, I, I, uh, that's a good way to keep up with me. I'm, I will, I'm gonna make a commitment that I will have more of an online presence very soon. Um, I got my new gig, which we touched on at Optispan. We're kind of still in stealth mode, but we're getting close. We'll be coming public pretty soon. And I think that uh, people will be able to find me. We're going to have a, hopefully a pretty active uh, YouTube channel and, and website. So uh, stay tuned, I guess would be what I say. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. Also support the Methuselah Foundation. Uh, they are the ones that are that are supporting this this whole effort, this podcast, and we're, we're trying to make it grow. And we appreciate having quality uh, guests like you, Matt Caberline. Thank you so much for coming. This is the Elon Jeffrey Podcast. Good night.